Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, it's Penn. Uh, We still have our usual episode coming up tomorrow, but we wanted to bring you something extra this week. Our friends over at the podcast, Truth Be Told, just dropped their second season. And I wanted to share their recent episode with you. It's about COVID-19, and it's called Rona and Racism, A Survival Guide. I listened, I found a few jewels, and I hope you do too. But before we get into that, I've been reaching out to former guests from Right Nowish, just asking them how they're dealing with everything that's going on, you know, in terms of self-care and family matters and racism. Dr. Connie One had this to offer. I am meditating and taking walks, going on hikes, getting some exercise in where I can, and then definitely organizing with other community members and uh, leaders across the country to do work on the anti-Asian violence that's happening um, in the U.S. and across the globe. We are issuing letters of solidarity. We're teaming up with mutual aid projects to make sure that we all team up against all forms of racial violence and are taking care of each other under the pandemic. Thanks. Hear more about Connie in our episode, Politicizing Sex Work with Connie Wun, which dropped a few months back. And stay tuned for Truth Be Told, coming up right after this. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, how are you doing out there? Or should I say in there, at home, doing your social distancing? It is hard, and there is so much information we're getting every day about the spread of coronavirus and the changes to our lives. It is a lot. He shouted, I don't want your coronavirus in my country. He's Chinese. Oh, she's Chinese. Oh, she definitely has a coronavirus. All the other students who are coughing, they don't get sent out, but they're not Asian. He was verbally attacking me. I'm Tanya Mosley, and on this episode of Truth Be Told, a survival guide on how to live in the time of Rona as a person of color. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. I need your help. You know, Black, Brown, Asian, and Indigenous people have an especially unique and painful history during times of crises. And sadly, we're seeing some of those same things play out today. I'm worried about, like, my mom. And I was just telling her, like, you know, Mom, you're, like, in your 60s, trying to wear a mask. And she said, like, I don't want to wear a mask because I don't want to get beaten up. (laughs) When I heard that, it was just so saddening and, like, frustrating and infuriating because, I don't think anyone in a, should feel that way. I actually just talked to a young woman. She was just trying to go to the gym and she was walking on the street and this man off the street blamed her for bringing the coronavirus to the United States and followed her and spat on her. We're going to talk about these hateful attacks and warranted fears Asian people in our country are experiencing. And we're also going to break down some of the myths we've been hearing about this virus, including some really weird ones that had come from these fake news articles floating around the Internet that somehow Black and Mexican people can't contract it. But you also know this show. We are also going to talk about healing and finding comfort and joy during times like this which is why it only seemed fitting that we bring in a special wise one to answer your questions and to give us context about this moment we're in right now. I'm Dr. Seema Yasmin. I'm a physician and a journalist. She's the perfect wise one to take on your questions and give us tips on how to survive. Before becoming an author and journalist, Seema tracked the migration of diseases like COVID-19. So she's seen what highly contagious diseases can do to communities and really how racism rears its ugly head during times like this. We recorded this on Friday, March 20th. And as you know, things are changing by the minute. But so much of this episode will resonate for months and really years to come. So I want you to stick with us. And just a note, Seema and I were recording from our closets instead of recording in a studio because, you know, that's what podcast people do to get a quiet space. And we couldn't be together because of coronavirus. So here we go. Welcome, Seema. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to talk about some of the questions that our listeners have. We put a call out to our Truth Be Told family asking for specific questions for you about the spread of the virus and the spread of xenophobia and out-and-out racism. We can start from the top with our president calling this a Chinese virus. Why do you keep using this? Because it comes from China. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. We saw photographs of the president's speaking notes where it had been crossed out where it said coronavirus and changed to Chinese virus. That's right. So this is a very deliberate targeting of Chinese people. And that's already playing out, sadly, in those stories we're hearing about violent attacks against 
Chinese people and people of Asian descent, there's a long history of scapegoating particularly Chinese people, but people of color broadly, black people, when it comes to disease epidemics. It's happened a long time. Some historians even say that the Chinatowns that we now visit and enjoy in the U.S. today were originally started almost as quarantines for Chinese immigrants back then. Oh, because tell they were me considered, more, really? Yeah, they were considered by Americans as dirty, as having unhygienic practices. And it was like, you be over there and we'll be over here. So there's this very long history of saying disease comes from non-white people. And I am fearful of that in this situation. We're seeing how it plays out. We're seeing even White House officials say in the face of Asian journalists, very xenophobic things. And that impacts our safety and our psychological health at a time when, like everyone, we're trying to figure out all this uncertainty and all these unknowns. And then on top of it, we have to worry about that kind of xenophobia, sinophobia, racism. Our producers for this episode spoke with Cynthia Che. She's the co-director of Chinese for Affirmative Action. It's an organization based out of San Francisco. And Cynthia echoed what you're saying here, that this kind of sentiment is not new. Trump didn't invent anti-Asian sentiment. He's merely perpetuating a long-standing stereotype and racist tropes about Asian Americans that have existed since we migrated to this country. And that is of, of being diseased, of being unhygienic, about the food that we eat, our culture. Uh, the otherization that has existed in this country is merely being resurrected and rearing its ugly head again. You know, clearly, the reference to the Chinese virus or the Kung flu or the Wuhan virus goes against every public health official, including the administration's own health officials. That last part that Cynthia said is very important here, because while the coronavirus originated in Wuhan, China, it is not a Chinese disease. But really, the implications of calling it that are far and wide. I mean, You heard earlier, we have folks who are saying they're afraid for their moms to go out because they don't want them to get beat up. There is a real fear of that. So what we're hearing is that some folks are taking a proactive approach. James Shee called our Truth Be Told hotline. He lives here in Los Angeles, and he decided to map out where hate crimes against Asian Americans are happening. I had made like kind of a joke post, a coronavirus live map is great, but can we also get a live map of hate crimes? And I realized like actually that's kind of something that might be important for people to see like visually on a map. I'm Asian American, I'm Taiwanese American, and I have parents there in the Bay Area. I'm currently living in LA, but they're older and If anything were to happen to them or my other family members, I would be really angry. I would be really hurt. And hopefully the map can help others sort of get an idea where these crimes are happening and, you know, protect one another. What are some other proactive things that you are thinking about when you're thinking about us taking control over our fate and this uncertainty during this time? I think there's power in being informed. And I think there's power in being connected across our communities. And we've had to do that in previous situations. This isn't brand new in that regard. And while right now it's hard to be informed because there's so much information, 
And plus there's misinformation and disinformation. I think we can tap into those people in our networks, in our communities, who we already trust and have some of that skill set to pass through the information overload and figure out what it is we need to believe and what it is we need to do. So I, I always come back to this idea that it's community that makes me feel grounded and safe and community that helps me figure out where I can get this thing that I need and this other thing that I need and community where I can feel most useful in terms of what can I do for my neighbor. I may not be able to go inside their apartment at the moment, but there's still ways that we can help each other be connected, to have dialogue and to have these conversations where we're working through on a daily basis all the stuff that's happening within the 24-hour news cycle. Let's get right to that because many of our questions speak directly to what you're talking about. Our first question comes from Roberto Garcia of San Francisco. Dear Truth Be Told, my name is Roberto Garcia, and as an African-American man, I'm concerned about the impact of shelter-in-place orders given the current state of this international pandemic. My supervisor recommended that I consider coming in for work with little to no consideration about what breaking these orders might have on me as a Black man in today's society. While the police chiefs of our area have stated that they desire to inform rather than arrest, there are still potentially monetary and legal consequences available at their discretion, including jail time. Should I be found to be out and about without appropriate reason? My concern is that these recent orders will give police similar freedoms equivalent to the unconstitutional stop and frisk laws of cities like New York. Thank you. Roberto brings up a good point about feeling fear around all of this. I mean, I'm thinking about GameStop, for instance, how they resisted calls to close stores because they were saying that it was an essential business. They have now closed all of their stores. But really, that brings to mind this argument that that initial decision could have needlessly put people in danger, basically telling black and brown people who work in these industries to ignore law enforcement. That kind of guidance completely ignores the fact that policing in the United States and in Europe and in many places is racist. It's a racist institution. And it's already violent in terms of how it deals with Muslim people, Middle Eastern people, you know, marginalized people. You add to that a crisis situation when the police are being given extra powers and then employers are telling people of color, don't listen to the police. That's a recipe for anxiety and for potential disaster. Hmm. Yeah, Seema, right now in other parts of the world, people cannot step outside without getting arrested. I mean, what Roberto is basically saying is, I'm fearful that this will escalate. But I'm just wondering from you, how can we mitigate this for ourselves and our families as we go through these ever-changing rules that we're hearing about from the government? Ever-changing is right. And such a hodgepodge of responses when you think about how the governor of New York is responding versus the president which leaders are taking leadership seriously and really trying to help communities understand. So yes, I think about that. How do we process that? I'm talking as a Muslim woman um, of Indian origin, and I'm British, obviously, living in the United States. Communities become even more important to me if that was even possible, because community is always important to me. Having those conversations about, well, here's what leaders are saying, but how does this relate to us and what decisions should we make as, as our particular community in terms of how we move through the world at this time? It's hard. And of course, I don't have one particular answer, right? By the time this goes live, things may have changed in terms of social policies and what we're being asked to do because it's changing by the day. I think it's really important that we listen to the messages we're being given. 
Those are often contradictory and opposing between politicians and health officials. So that's confusing, but take all of the above and then let's try and talk between our families and our communities to think, how does this really pertain to us and how should we use this data and this information to keep ourselves safe? And often that can be different. That can look different for different communities. Yeah. This question comes from Mia from Berkeley, California. She actually has two questions. Let's take a listen. One is we have a large homeless population here in California. What are we going to do to help them stay safe or get vaccinated and testing? Are they actually going to be treated like everybody else or are we going to keep them on the streets? My other question is, it seems like the rich, the privileged and celebrities seem to be getting these tests all over the place. But our nurses, our healthcare workers, people we know more than likely have the coronavirus in hospitals that are sick and dying can't seem to get one. Why are these tests seem to be divided up unfairly in our population? Hmm. Uh, Seema, two very good questions that I think lots of people have. The homeless populations and vulnerable populations, what what's in place for them? What are we seeing in other parts of the country? Um, and also tests and if, if the tests are being given out equitably. So, you know, a virus is just a tiny packet of genetic code, but it will really hold a mirror up to your society and make you take a long, hard look at yourself and what safety nets you do and don't have, what kind of access to healthcare celebrities have versus regular people. It will show you how inadequate systems are for caring for people, for accommodating for homeless people and transgender people and people who already have terrible experiences in the healthcare system on, during a regular time. And so for me, this crisis just shines a light on everything that's already damaged. Mm. The fact that pro athletes and celebrities who don't even mm -hmm. have symptoms, Kris Jenner did not have symptoms and was able mm -hmm. to get a test. Whereas my colleagues in the ER, nurses have called me up and said, I was exposed to somebody who tested positive for this disease team. I had really close contact with them. I can't get a test. What should I do? And that's, that's a nurse. Yeah, you bring up a really good point because we have been seeing posts all over the place from folks who say, I have no symptoms and I have tested positive. What that is really an indication of is your ability to get a test despite the fact that exactly. you don't have symptoms. If you think that you're going to be safe like that, you're not understanding how connected health is. Mm. Me being protected means I have to make sure you are safe and protected. For, the, for that guy, Matt Colvin, who was stashing thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer, mm. folks like that don't understand that for you to stay safe, it's not just your hands that need to be clean. It's mine and your neighbors and the homeless person down the road. Yeah. Like We need to be having a much more collectivistic approach to public health because it's about the public. And I do want to acknowledge cities and towns throughout the country there is a push from those on the ground to get those tests for those populations. You know, we're just seeing a huge bottleneck right now because there weren't enough tests to begin with in the United States. There was a massive delay in testing here in the United States. The CDC developed its own test early February. Unfortunately, when it sent that out, it turned out to be a faulty test. My thing is, mistakes happen during a crisis. It's okay, you start over. But the problem was, twofold. It was a problem of 
regulation because the emergency regulations in the US prohibited other scientists from developing a test at the same time and only allow the CDC. So it meant when the CDC test didn't work, another academic wasn't able to say, oh, it's okay, here, use my test. But the other problem is a problem of hubris. By the time the US had developed a faulty test, the World Health Organization had sent out tens of thousands of testing kits to a few dozen countries around the world. Mm. Now, when reporters said to US politicians, why didn't you just take the test from the World Health Organization? They said, we're leaders in the world in infectious diseases. That's not how this works. Developing countries rely on help from the World Health Organization. The US doesn't rely on that help. That's the kind of hubris that kills people. Yeah. What bit of advice would you give? I mean, as people are thinking about, I am, maybe I don't have symptoms, but I also want to know where I can go if that becomes a reality for me. I don't have a simple answer to this because as I'm reporting on this, Tanya, what I'm learning is people say to me, I went to my doctor. My doctor said, go to the Department of Health. I went to the Department of Health. They said, go to the CDC. I called the CDC and then they said, call the urgent care. I called the urgent care and then they said, call your health. Like It's ridiculous. And I haven't seen at all anywhere a solid public health response that speaks to the fact that we have so many homeless people, that we have so many incarcerated people, and those are vulnerable people who often don't have great access to healthcare anyway, yeah. and who are living in conditions that leave them much more vulnerable to the spread of infectious disease. Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to what you were saying about a pandemic like this really makes clear the ills in our yeah. society and the gaps in our society. Yeah. You know, a lot of our other questions are really getting at the inequities. Um, Gabriela Barsenas wants to know, how is the virus impacting migrant camps and asylum seekers waiting at Mexico's borders or immigration centers? And, you know, Seema, we've actually been hearing a lot about the closing of the Mexico border and even even some of those northern borders. What are your thoughts on this? This whole concept of closing borders and restricting travel, those policies often go against the science. The World Health Organization has warned previously that those kinds of travel restrictions hurt people more than they help the public health response. Now, there is some evidence that early on in an epidemic, it can help to limit travel. But once we're at a point where we are now in the United States, it doesn't make sense to restrict travel. And in fact, the way that this administration has tried to do that has created nightmare scenarios at places like Chicago's O'Hare Airport and Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. I don't know if you saw those photographs of hundreds of people crammed together like sardines in a tin. That is exactly what you do not want during a pandemic situation. We're still hearing about ICE officers arresting people and detaining people, and then a lack of transparency about why that's continuing during a national emergency and whether there are any people infected within ICE facilities. So I really worry about that because there's a lack of transparency at the best of times. And then sometimes what happens during an emergency is you're told that that kind of information can't be shared. I'm so worried about this. I'm really concerned about this because what is the actual call to action as now we have more reporters and activists who are no longer on the front lines because of this virus, who are watchdogs and all of this? I think we've done it before in some ways. I think many people of color and people in marginalized communities 
know what crisis feels like because in some regards, it's a crisis every day when you're struggling to figure out your immigration papers and you're struggling to get access to the most basic services. I think many people are freaking out because this is new to them. But I think for many people living on the margins of society, this is worse than usual for sure, but we know how to live in a crisis situation. And I think we have to call on those resources, whether they're in us and within our community, and really figure out how we're going to be there for each other, how we're going to have each other's back when the systems that are supposed to support us are letting us down. I want to take a question from Shannon Messerly. She left us a voice message on our hotline. Let's listen. My name is Shannon Messerly, and I'm calling in because I've been noticing a lot of white folks still out and about like it's no big deal and commenting on social media as though these quarantines are infringing on their freedoms for no reason. And I'm wondering, are they actually oblivious to the risks of being out right now? Or are they just being willful because they're that egocentric um, as opposed to other cultures that are more collectively minded? Interested to hear your thoughts. Seema. I've heard the same thing from friends in London who say, why am I staying at home? Am I doing the right thing? Because I see white folks moving through the community as if nothing has happened. And again, to me, it's that idea of this virus being microscopic and just a tiny packet of RNA, but shining a light on the different ways that we move through the world and who feels safe at what given point, what regard one person has for the rest of the community. The guidance really is to do social distancing, to do physical distancing so that we can keep each other safe. Hmm. You know, I mentioned earlier about the fake news and the concern about disseminating information to marginalized groups. But, you know, there have been a lot of news articles that I have seen about black and brown people not getting coronavirus. You know, the thing that I thought about regarding those is that they're really rooted in this racist history that really tells us that people of color, somehow our bodies are different somehow. So while it's kind of being portrayed as like a benefit it really does give us an insight into deeper racist ideologies around um, black and brown bodies. What are your thoughts on this? That messaging that potentially black people and Mexican people are somehow protected from this, it's untrue. And while it might be purporting to share something of benefit, actually it leaves people in those communities extra vulnerable to the disease if they then have a false sense of security that they are somehow miraculously protected. Right now, there's no evidence of that. And I write a lot and think a lot about the way we use race in medicine. It's often racist medicine. There are many studies that show that non-Black physicians here in the US and other places hold magical beliefs about Black bodies, believe that Black people's blood clots differently, that Black people feel pain differently, and that those beliefs manifest in very different experiences for Black people in the healthcare system in the US. They are often withheld pain medications and and just treated in ways that they should not be treated. And of course, we see during a disease that it's not just a virus that spreads, it's rumors and health hoaxes about the virus. But that misinformation often disproportionately affects communities who are already vulnerable because of 
inadequate access to healthcare and treatment. So I worry about that double whammy of one, you live in a health desert defined as a place where you don't have adequate access to care. But two, then you live in a news desert, a place where local journalism has been decimated. So you're at the mercy of whatever information comes your way. And you're even more susceptible to both the spread of disease and the spread of false health news about the disease. Yeah, there's also a lot of suspicion in many POC groups regarding medical care and suspicions that this coronavirus is man-made. That is something that is out there. And uh, historically, there are reasons why people feel this way. In many instances, it's rooted in truth. But can you clear up for people here how they actually talk to perhaps maybe uh, older family members who have great suspicions, not only about the treatments that are to come for coronavirus, but also the fact that coronavirus might have been man-made. This virus is not man-made, but as people of color, as Black people, Indigenous people, there are many reasons to distrust medical authorities and the government. There's a long and bloody history of unethical studies done on the bodies of marginalized people. We can talk about Tuskegee and Guatemala, but there are so many more instances of things happening that build distrust between people that need access to care and those that provide the care. I study the spread of false health news. And I think it's really important when you're having those difficult conversations about what should you believe, what should you not believe, that you have compassion and kindness when you're at that phase of the conversation where you're listening to somebody's firmly held beliefs. Maybe they think this virus is man-made. Maybe they think that vaccines are harmful. You have to hear them out because often those beliefs are are seated in some history, some historical event that built that distrust. And I think only by having that compassion and openness at at the beginning can you then start to say, well, here's what I've learned. And here are the sources where my evidence comes from. And I know you're worried about this, but here's where I'm feeling some reassurance. And I think that we should listen to these new sources. But it's, it's difficult because you're in an emergency situation trying to undo centuries of unethical studies. Dr. Seema Yasmin. Seema, thank you so much for this important conversation. Thank you. I hope it's useful. I feel so unwise right now in my closet. <laughs> you're very wise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And as much as there are still so many unanswered questions, I hope that by opening up this dialogue and sharing some of what we know and don't know does empower people and helps us get some clarity on the importance of community at times like this. We all may be feeling a little helpless during all of this, but as Seema said, there is power in being informed. And if you have experienced or witnessed racism, you are not alone. Here's Cynthia Che again. She's the co-director of the Chinese for Affirmative Action. To report acts of hate, you can go to Stop AAPI Hate, which is a reporting center where individuals can report incidents that they've experienced or witnessed. And it went live on March 19th, so folks can go there directly. And, you know, I think this goes without saying that you can always, always be there for others. Even if we are not in physical proximity with each other, we can be creative about it all and still be generous with each other. Truth Be Told is produced by Latoya Tools and Issa Mendoza, with sound design from Katie McMurrin and additional help in reporting from Kiana Mogadam and Vita Kwong. 
A special shout out to all of you who shared your questions and concerns with us. Keep them coming. We want to hear from you. KQED's leadership team includes Julie Kane, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, the host of KQED's Right Nowish podcast. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.